So I invite you as you listen, you're welcome to listen with your eyes open, with your eyes closed. You can be somewhat relaxed. You can sit up in a meditative posture. But see if you can not completely lose your mindfulness through this talk. You can keep some of your attention on your body, some awareness of your body as you're listening, noticing your thoughts, noticing your emotions, your judgments, your feelings, whatever's happening, it can be part of the meditative practice. It doesn't have to stop. So in Thailand, they have this way of catching monkeys. And I, ha- I apologize if this is a slightly graphic um, kind explanation, but I think it really does the trick. What they do to catch monkeys is they hollow out a coconut and they stick a banana inside the coconut and they have an opening in the coconut that's about, that's pretty small. It's just big enough for the monkey to reach its hand in, but not big, but when the monkey reaches his hand in, he grabs the banana and he's stuck. And then he's completely stuck. And the only way for him to get out, and he's screaming and screaming and trying to get out, and they catch him. The only way, of course, for him to get out is to let go, drop the banana, and release his hand. This is, that's it, that's the Four Noble Truth. (laughs) Drop the banana. (laughs) So the Four Noble Truths, now that was the short version of the talk. The long version of the talk is the next 45 minutes or so. The Four Noble Truths are, the first Noble Truth is that there's suffering in life. The second Noble Truth is suffering always has causes. The third noble truth is the end of suffering is possible by ending the causes. And the fourth is the noble eightfold path is the way to end suffering. And I take this translation from, um, for some of you are familiar with Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was a, a monk, a very famous and esteemed forest master who lived in Thailand. He passed away about 10 years ago really amazing translator and radical interpreter of the Buddhist teachings. And so my talk tonight will be influenced some by him and also his main translator, Santikara Bhikkhu, who's taught me a lot about the Four Noble Truths. Also to say the word noble, the actual word in the language, in the Buddhist language, Pali, is Arya, and it means literally beyond the reach of enemies. So when we talk about the noble truths, it's about truths that can take us beyond the reach of our internal enemies, essentially ourselves. So the first noble truth, there's suffering in life. Um, This is not life is suffering, forget it. That's how some people, some people hear about Buddhism and they hear, oh, it's this really depressing, pessimistic religion. Life is suffering, I'm out of here. That's not what it is. There's suffering in life. It's the monkey with his hand in the coconut screaming. And so we're experiencing suffering all the time. There's suffering in life. And the word that we use is dukkha. Dukkha, the the translation for dukkha can be anything from unsatisfactoriness to dis-ease or unease. It can be stress, pain, disconnection. So it's any sense of um, things not being right. 
And it's meant for us to look at it as this is the psychological response, the internal response of two external conditions or to something that's going on that causes suffering to us. So the suffering is, is our psychological response, the unease, the dissatisfaction, the unpleasantness. This is dukkha. So there's three kinds. There's the ordinary kind of suffering, which is the suffering, the dukkha that you experience because of there's, you have an illness or someone you love has an illness or you, there's a loss, there's death, there's, there's pain, there's the suffering of hurting yourself, there's the suffering of loneliness, the suffering of fear, the suffering, the suffering, just the whole range of human suffering, of ordinary suffering. The second kind of suffering is closely related. In fact, they're all very related, but it's the suffering of change. So it's the psychological stress that we experience when we experience uh, when something changes. So it might be the loss of a loved one, but it might just be the fact that nothing lasts. That we live in this world that's constantly changing. And because of that, we suffer. And one of the best examples for this, the way suffering just comes upon us is the way, because of change, is when you think about the way your house always gets dirty. You know, it, no matter what you do, our house gets dirty. We just we keep it very clean. Maybe some of us, some of us don't, perhaps. But um, but then a little while later, change happens. Dust accumulates, things accumulate, and it's dirty. And then there is it's a kind of accumulated dukkha. The third kind of dukkha is a more existential dukkha, the sense that what's life about? You know, we may have all felt this at some point in our life. I don't. I don't think things don't feel quite right. There's some sadness or just what is it's existential angst or dukkha. So here you are, the first day of our meditation retreat. I'm imagining you've experienced some dukkha. A little bit? A lot. Those of those who we talk to, we know that a lot of you were experiencing suffering of all forms, anxiety, unease, unpleasantness. It's not going the way I want it to, wanting it to be different. There's just a whole range of, um, of experiences out there. So the ordinary kind that people were experiencing, big one, body pain. A lot of you, especially on the first day, there's a lot of body pain. This is quite normal. There might be more internal experiences of loneliness, anxiety, unfamiliarity, boredom, self-judgment, judgment of others. There's just this whole range possible on retreat and outside of retreat. And then the second kind, the kind that's related to change, you might be seeing that all the time. You might notice that when the, the weather was really nice. Today was such an interesting day with the weather, right? It was nice for a while. And then the next thing you know, the clouds would come out. And, oh, where'd that beautiful sun go? And then by the end of the day, it's been drizzling. And we can see the change, the suffering that it produces inside us when there is, um, when there is unpleasant circumstances. It leads to our own suffering. And then the third kind, the existential kind, you may be feeling here, or it may be what propelled you to come to this retreat you might have wanted to know 
what is it all about? What is, what is life about? And this retreat may have been a place that you're coming looking for answers. I know for myself, when I was early on in my, um, before I found the Dharma, I had a lot of questions, a lot of, a lot of existential dukkha, essentially. I didn't call it that because I didn't know that's what it was. But I had this sense, I don't really know what my life is about. I just felt this sense of unease. Actually, an example of dukkha that I've heard people say, I didn't make this up, is that, you know when you have a shopping cart and one of the wheels is off <laughs> and you're trying to roll it and it just <laughs> and it won't go in the right direction? This is a good example of dukkha. So I stumbled upon the Dharma. This was in India. I was in Dharamsala, India, where the Dalai Lama has his government in exile. And I heard the teachings, and I heard the first noble truth, that there was suffering. And my experience was one of tremendous relief. Finally, someone's talking about what I'm experiencing. So this is a quote from, um, this is from a man named Tim Dearborn, who's the uh, head, he's a Christian minister, and he's the head of World Vision, which does international aid work throughout the world. A group of Indian pastors once challenged me by saying, you Americans are utterly unequipped for life in the real world. Oh, really? I said, that's quite a claim. What do you mean? You think that life is supposed to be pleasant, Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and all that stuff, one said. When it's not, you think something is wrong, that you need to fix it. Once fixed, you can get back to that normal state, pleasant. On the contrary, he continued, we, these pastors in India, we think that life is hard. We know we will suffer. Our challenge is to learn how to trust God in the midst of suffering, find his purposes through it, and still have the courage and hope to change it. I think they were right, he goes on to say. We do act as if something is wrong when sorrow strikes. Usually we seek the fastest way out, the escape. Some even suggest that our Western economy would collapse if we stopped trying to escape suffering. Much of our society, it's true, seeks to provide us with medical or chemical escapes. We long for electronic diversions, whether televised, digitized, or pre-recorded. Entire industries are devoted to fantasy vacations or to encouraging us to indulge in shopping sprees. These diversions aren't bad in themselves unless we're tempted to believe that happiness is best found apart from the normal fabric of life. Joy and sorrow, suffering and pleasure, all mixed together, often existing simultaneously. So we're in this culture that hates suffering. It's really so suffering aversive. We do so much, everything we possibly can to avoid suffering, and yet it's absolutely impossible. We try to, people try to live in um, homes where there's complete security and big walls and security system and guards and gates, so to keep out any kind of suffering. But it doesn't work. And then often we take it personally when bad things happen. It's that sense, that poor me sense, that things shouldn't happen to me. It's really interesting because I know that I do this all the time. When I'm, if things are going well, everything's fine. But then when something bad happens, I think it's my fault. Like I did something wrong, and that's why bad things are happening. Rather than realizing that 
suffering is a fact of life. There is suffering in life. So we think suffering is a problem. So I just want us to take a moment, right, the second, if we're having, if we experience suffering on this retreat today, or in our lives because of things that have happened or are currently happening, to just take a breath together and know that it's okay that they're suffering. Just take a moment. There's not something wrong with you because you're suffering. It's the way that life is. And there's a way out of, not out of the way that life brings us things that are suffering because those are external circumstances of which we have no control. But there's a way out in our relationship to them. And that's the second noble truth. So the second noble truth is suffering always has causes. So why is the monkey screaming? Okay, remember our monkey friend? He has the coconut, his hands in there, he's grabbing onto the banana, he wants that thing so badly, and he then he can't get out, and so he's screaming, he's captured. Why is he screaming? Because he is, why is he suffering? Because of his clinging onto this banana, this craving. So in Buddhism, we talk about different types of craving and ways that craving cause suffering. And one kind of craving is the craving to sense for sense pleasures. The craving, it's called kama tanha, the craving for sense pleasures. The craving for things and people and experiences and any sort of pleasure of the senses, the senses that can provide happiness. The second kind is abhava tanha, or the craving for being and having. Now, it's usually translated as the craving for becoming, to become some, uh, a thing or become, become another identity. I really like the translation that I got from Ajahn Buddha Dasa, which is the craving for being and having, to be something, to be an identity of some sort, to have something. Um, and the third is abhava tanha, which means the, the craving to not be or not have that's generally looked on as that craving to just go into a deep sleep and get away from it all. So before I go into it specifically, when people hear us, when people hear us Buddhists talk about craving, they think, but I have all these desires. And that's part of my life. And I want to say that it's very normal to have desires. We're human beings. And it's normal to have identities and to want to be and to have. It's completely part of our makeup. The problem is that we get stuck. It's as though they things begin to possess us. We're like the monkeys. We're stuck on the bananas. And that's where the dukkha happens. That's where we suffer. So... How do we suffer from our clinging and our craving? We suffer because we really, really want something and we can't have it. The relationship that we've wanted for so long and it's just right outside of our reach or the job or the, the, um, the perfect home or whatever it is and we don't get it, we suffer. We suffer when there's something we really, really want 
and then we get it, and the thrill passes, like little kids on Christmas morning. You know, oh, this present, they open it up, and then, oh yeah, okay, oh, what's next? Right? That's how we're operating quite a bit um, with, in regard to things, people, and experiences. We, we're suff- we suffer because we get it, and then we're sorry. We wish we never did. Another relationship one, right? You, the perfect relationship you've been waiting for all your life, and then you think, what am I doing with this person? We're suffering. So um, be careful what you wish for. George Bernard Shaw says, suffering is not getting what you want and getting it. And then we suffer when we get it and it doesn't meet our expectations. So that's sort of the same thing. But this is a a comic that got out of the New Yorker. And it's a couple at a travel agency. And they're looking at a bunch of brochures and they say, and the husband says to his wife, it all looks so great. I can't wait to be disappointed. <laughs> I had this experience on retreat, one of my early, early retreats, where um, it was a long retreat, and I had a lot of energy. And so I would find myself walking around quite a bit at night, having a hard time meditating, but had a lot of energy. So I did this thing, which I'm not recommending, and um, in fact, I'm telling you, don't do it. <laughs> but this is what I did. This was a long time ago. Was I went into the kitchen and I peeked at the menu, because there was nothing going on. But the most exciting thing on retreat was food. So I looked at the menu and I saw that coming up in a couple of days was pizza, and I got very, very excited. So it was, I think it was about Tuesday, and I looked and I saw Friday pizza was coming. So I spent the next three days not meditating, but thinking about pizza. And in this meditation center, they make very good pizza. I mean, it's really special, homemade crust, really good. So I would think about it and think about, oh, back to the breath, yes, okay. Oh, the pizza, the pizza. So that was my meditation. So finally, the day came of the, um, of the pizza, and I woke up so excited, and I, by lunchtime, I, I planned it perfectly so I would be third in line. I didn't want to be first in line because I thought that would look too greedy, but third in line would get me the good <laughs> slice, right? So I got there, and I got the pizza, and it was this beautiful day, and I got my plate, and I got the best kinds. and I went out, and I sat down, and I just was so excited, and I picked up the pizza, and I started to eat it. And it was bread and cheese and tomato sauce. It was pizza. It was okay. It was actually good. I mean, it was very good, but it was not, it had nothing to do with the expectations that I had laid out for myself. And in fact, what I realized was I had spent so much more time planning and with excitement, trying to get it, trying to have this ultimate pleasure that I thought would end my suffering when in fact it was causing more suffering with this clinging, this needing, this pizza to make me happy. And I saw it, I saw it so clearly by it just, the whole three days before it just came to me in that moment, I said, okay, it's just pizza. It's just pizza. It's just a job. It's just the person of my dreams. So 
looking at, look, I'm going to just look at two of the different kinds of craving. The first craving, the craving for things, people, and experiences, or sense pleasures. So this first one, we're deluded into thinking that something like pizza, or whatever it is, can provide us with happiness. And that's where things, where we're confused, according to the Buddhist teachings. When we, when we fixate on something, it's as though we become one track. And I'm exaggerating a little, but sometimes you've experienced this, that there's this sense that it's the only thing that can solve all my problems. I need it. I'm going to mow down every single thing in the way. Um, I've got to get it. And we, we just, it, we put our happiness in the object, in the person, in the thing, or in that experience. And so we think, we get confused, we think that our happiness is in the object. But actually, our happiness doesn't come from the object. It comes from inside ourselves. So when you're here and you're meditating during the course of the day, and suddenly you just have this idea that if I could just get the perfect chair in meditation, then I'll be happy, or the perfect meditation blanket, and then you spend an hour thinking about going down to the store and maybe you'll sneak down there and no one will know because you know they sell those pashminas and everybody likes the pashminas and you know, your mind is going off and on and on and on about things. This is this fixating, this desiring, this craving for this thing, thinking that your happiness exists inside it. I've always had this, early on in my practice, I used to think that if I had the perfect walking meditation spot, then all my problems would be solved. So I would, do, I would sit in the back of the hall and I'd rush out before anybody got out so I could get to the spot to make sure nobody would steal it. And that was the source of what I thought my happiness would be. I learned, ultimately, to relax. Um, but it's, it's so interesting the way our minds create the sense of happiness external to it and it's the culture. We're taught that. We're told that happiness is in the next car or the next vacation or the next promotion. So an example from my life is a way I've been really stuck around clinging and uh, around things and experiences is I moved about five or six months ago. And I had this notion that I didn't have that much stuff. I was astounded what was in my basement. (laughs) And it was just stuff that at some point or another I thought was going to make me happy. You know, this old pressure cooker, I don't know what I was thinking, a leash, I don't even have a dog for a dog. Um, There was um, some fabric that I was definitely going to make into cushions, and then there was um, a shelf that I was sure I was going to use one day. And I could trace every single item to the moment I thought that that was going to provide me happiness. And I think moving is a great opportunity to just see our attachment to things, of course, because then you have to cull through it and let go and practice the third noble truth, which will be letting go of our clinging. So that was my first experience around the things. It's normal to have desires. I said this earlier. Ajahn Buddhadasa talks about having what he calls wise wants. So it's fine, we want things, but can we be skillful with it? 
can we not think that our happiness is dependent upon getting that new refrigerator or whatever it is? Um, it's not about not being passionate and loving things that we care about. It's not that at all. We're not trying to say, oh, Buddhism turns you into a zombie because you've let go of all attachments and you're completely free. No, it's not like that. It's much more about can we be wise? Can we know ourselves? Can we know our minds and the way that we get caught by things? And can we learn to let go when we're really hooked? So the second piece with the craving is the craving for being and having. Being a good mother, being the perfect lawyer, being the craving for being a good friend, for, for having um, a certain place in society. The craving, it doesn't necessarily even mean good things that we crave for. Sometimes we identify as being really bad and we want to keep that identity around. Um, so any kind of craving around identity is the second kind of craving. What's happening is we're taking birth all the time in these cravings, okay? In the, I'm sorry, in these identities. So there are millions of them happening, you know, in the course of one meditation sitting. I'm a good meditator, I'm a bad meditator, I hate myself, that person next to me, um, we identify as the, a worse meditator than the person next to you. We suddenly remember this incident that happened five years ago and we, identi- we turn into the identity of a person who feels shame or remorse. We have an identity as, I'm having a great meditation sitting, it's going to last forever. So you see this, you're sitting here watching your mind, paying attention all day, And it's just seeing this birth, this new identity, new identity, new identity. It's the sense of self that comes into being, that's that's born in each moment. And for some, as some may find that it can be a burden. There's so much me. This also, it's so self-referential. This is a quote from. um, Hold on. It's from uh, the playwright and actor Wallace Shawn, and it was in the New York Times. He says, I think there's something idiotic about the self, that every day you have to get up and be the same person. And when your work centers around yourself, as work in the so-called arts does, there can be something so idiotic about it that it's boring. It can be somewhat infuriating to wake up and find that one has the same characteristics that one had when one went to bed the night before. So the problem is we believe these identities. Each time we take birth in each new moment, we really believe them. So in my moving example, when I was moving, I had an identity about being a person who's very renounced. I've been a Buddhist for nearly 20 years, and I value renunciation. And so I just, in my head, I believed I didn't have that much stuff. I really did. I hadn't bothered to look in the basement of my apartment in a long time, and I think I would just sort of put things back there behind this curtain when I didn't want to. I didn't want to um, deal with them. So there was this very strong identity about being renounced, and when I opened um, this this basement and saw this stuff, it was a shock to my system. 
I'm, wait a minute, I'm not who I think I am. And we get this shock all the time in our lives. And we get this shock when, we, when something, we have this whole, uh, you know, the experience, for instance, of having a job for years and years and then leaving the job because you retire or because you decide to leave for whatever reason. And suddenly the question might be, wait a minute, who am I? So we take these identities very seriously, whether they're identities over the long term or this moment-to-moment creation of this sense of self, this me, me, me that's happening all the time. On retreat, we might have the experience of I'm, I'm a, I said this earlier, I'm a good meditator, I'm a bad meditator. We might be having past identities um, returning. We might be having future plans. Oh, I'm going to sit 20 retreats in a row and I'm going to have such a great experience and I know I'll probably get enlightened and it should happen by you know, the end of the year. And we just, We're just continually creating the self. And because we're creating... It, Again, the the creation of the self-process is natural. But the problem is that we cling to these identities. We believe them. And that's where we suffer. So another way of talking about it is that, let's say you're shot with an arrow. Somebody is shot by an arrow. Okay, This is a famous Buddhist uh, example. Someone's shot with an arrow... And he's in all this suffering, all this pain. But then what he does is he shoots himself again with a second arrow. So it's this arrow of reactivity. We're having an experience, and the experience may be unpleasant, or we may be, this thought may come through our head, I'm doing a really bad job here meditating. What am I doing here? But then this other, then we shoot the second arrow. Oh my God, I'm such a bad meditator. I shouldn't be judging myself. Now I'm really bad. I can't believe I'm judging myself. They said don't be judgmental. This is the second arrow. This is the way that we cling to the experience. We might be experiencing pain when we sit. Okay? This is really, really common, especially on the first day in the beginning of a retreat, as your body gets accustomed to the sitting posture. So we're experiencing pain, we feel the pain in our knee, and we think, oh no, something's wrong, this is terrible, I've got to do something about it, I've got to move my posture, what did they tell us to do, I can't, you know, and then there's just all this suffering, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to lose my blood flow, my leg's going to get paralyzed, what if I have to go to the hospital, what if, this is the reactivity, this is the clinging, the belief in the self that's concerned about the pain. So can we just be with the pain itself? It's just pain. It's just some squeezing, tightness, burning, shifting, moving. You can, you can feel it. You can, when you're feeling pain, you can bring your attention to the area of pain and notice what's happening. And then notice, is there reactivity? Is there clinging? Is there trying to push it away? Is there trying to hold on to something. Or if there's sleepiness. We're all, a lot of us are really sleepy. We have busy lives. So do we berate ourselves? Do we get mad at ourselves for being sleepy? Do we think that something's wrong with us? Or can we just be with the sleepiness? 
And the same with pretty much anything we're experiencing, with restlessness, with this, oops, with the self-judgment, with anything that's causing us suffering. So the third noble truth, now that I've laid out the map of suffering and why we suffer, luckily we're not just left there with that. An end of suffering is possible by ending the causes or by releasing the clinging. Another way it's sometimes said is peace is possible. Peace is possible for every single one of us. So the monkey, if the monkey had this insight that all the monkey would have to do is let go of his banana and he'd be free. But instead he's caught and I don't care to speculate what they do with monkeys, but he's gone. So the third noble truth, um, and this is from the Buddha, he said the third noble truth is the complete cessation of that very craving, giving it up, renouncing it, emancipation from it, non-attachment. So we end the causes, and then we end the suffering. Buddhists talk a lot about non-attachment. We get this rap, oh, Buddhism is all about non-attachment. In case you haven't heard it before, why is a Buddhist vacuum cleaner completely ineffective? Because it has no attachments. (laughs) Oh, bad one, right? (laughs) So um, we cling to... Sense, we cling to things. We have these attachments. We cling to sense experiences. We cling to the identities. We cling to this sense of self, and then we suffer. So the Buddha's the, the pith teaching. If you could have one sentence that the Buddha was that would probably sum up all of the teachings, it's nothing whatsoever should be clung to as me or mine. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as me or mine. But how? Drop the banana. That's the answer. So things. We have things that we're attached to. How do we let go? Because we don't want to suffer. If we decide we don't want to suffer. One is by noticing our desire. To really feel it in our body. Notice that we're wanting something. We want that job, we want that person, we want that um, cookie, we want that next piece of tofu, whatever it is, we can feel it inside ourselves with our mindfulness. We can use our mindfulness to investigate, to be with the experience. What does desire feel like? We don't need to act on it necessarily. And that's the beauty of this retreat. It's this container. You may have an attraction to a person here, but you're not allowed to do anything about it. You may have an aversion to a person here, and you're not allowed to do anything about it. So this is, this is the beauty of it. You get to see it. And what we get to learn is a desire doesn't have to be satisfied to make it go away. It can go away on its own, simply through the noticing and sometimes it just goes away. You know, you forget about things. You don't always have this desire. That chocolate that you wanted this afternoon, where's that desire? Now it's back, because I mentioned it, right? What we begin to see is that the desire, that desire 
as the desire loosens, we can find happiness with things as they are. A few years ago, um, my colleague and I taught a, a, a workshop or a set of classes called, we called it greed management. So we thought there was a lot of anger management classes, but really our culture needed greed management. And so we, ha- we did this whole exploration of the way that we get caught in our greed. And so one of our meditations was chocolate eating meditation. And so you'd sit there, we had these chocolate kisses, and you'd bring it up to your mouth, and you'd swallow it, and you just, oh, and the second it had disappeared, the way the desire would come for the next one. I mean, it was just, it was quite amazing. But the final exam to our, our uh, test, what, I mean, to our class, was we met in front of Bed Bath and Beyond, <laughs> and we invited everyone to go through a silent meditation through the store. They weren't allowed to talk to anyone. They weren't allowed to purchase anything. The only thing they were allowed to do was notice and be mindful. And it was such an interesting experience to take this truth out, to see how our minds cling, how they fixate on things, things that you never, ever knew you would even want because you didn't know they existed, right? But suddenly you see them. Oh, I need that. One of my teachers calls it catalog consciousness. You know when you get a catalog and suddenly you see all these things you didn't know existed and now you need them? That's the, that's the experience. So we actually we walked through them all really mindfully. And it was quite an amazing experience to notice our minds and to not follow it, to just notice, oh, desire comes and desire goes. This is from Ryo Khan, the Zen uh, master poet. Without desire... Everything is sufficient. With desire, myriad things are impoverished. Without, plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A patched robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone, I hike with a deer. Cheerfully, I sing with village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fills my heart. It's a lot simpler without being ruled and tossed by our desire, by our needs, by our clinging to things all the time. Oops. Okay. So being and having. So this is how to work with the, that desire, the desire of, of the, for things and people, experiences for sensual pleasures. But what about the identity desire? What about how the way we're constantly clinging to these identities that arise in each moment sometimes? So the key here is really mindfulness. It's, it's, I mean, this is the practice that we're doing here. This is the training ground, the tools that we're teaching. As our minds are hooked, we can learn to let go through this practice of mindfulness through bringing our attention directly to the experience. Now we start with the breath, because the breath helps us to calm and concentrate our minds, to gain some stability. It's our anchor. It's what we constantly return to. But as our mind gets quieter and calmer, then we can begin to notice all that's happening in our experience. 
And you don't even have to wait for your mind to get that calm. I mean, you can notice you're walking down to, um, to the line to get some lunch, and all you're doing is thinking about lunch. And so you're living in this forward identity, your sense of self. Oh, when I get lunch, then I'll be happy. It's going to be great. You don't have to be that concentrated. You can just notice that. We can notice what's happening in our hearts and minds all the time. As we notice it with the mindfulness, we can begin to let go. So how does this work? Sometimes it happens because um, we might, there might be an external suggestion. For instance, you're paying attention to your breath. You find yourself completely caught in some kind of fantasy where you're really identified. Then one of the teachers up here says something like, bring your attention back to your breath. Oh, I'm completely lost and identified and hooked. So you let go and you come back. It's not that difficult necessarily. You can remember yourself. You can have an internalized sense of, oh, returning to the breath. That helps me let go. When we're really stuck in something, when we're really clinging, the recognition is so important. See, sometimes we're in an identity and we're so caught and we don't even realize we're in the identity. And that's when we need to remember, oh, I'm stuck. Okay, hooked. I've grabbed that banana. I really am feeling like the worst meditator on the planet. And I believed it. Oh, okay. So you recognize that. At that point, you can investigate. You can feel into your body. What does it feel like? Oh, there's clinging. There's a sense. There's a pit feeling in my stomach, there's a burning. You can really pay attention, investigate the clinging, just the sensations of clinging. And then sometimes your own wisdom kicks in and just reminds you, oh, I'm clinging. Clinging equals suffering. Let go. The key is through the recognition and the um, investigation, and really a gentle sense of acceptance. It's okay. Whatever your mind is doing is okay. We often think there's something wrong when we're thinking a certain thing. Oh, we shouldn't be thinking that. It's just what our mind does. It's like our eyes see and our ears hear, our nose smells, our mind thinks. It's just what it does. So can we relax and say, there it is, and we don't need to hold on. A lot of times there's nothing you can do. It's like you're really stuck, you're really caught in something, and we try our best, but sometimes it's just the pure awareness itself. It lets go on its own. In fact, oftentimes it lets go on its own. There's not a lot you can do. The only act is to be mindful with kindness, for yourself. So the key then to when our minds are really stuck, and I'll say with myself, when I was going through this embarrassment about moving and having all this stuff and seeing my history of my stuff and feeling like I was, I was just so embarrassed. I thought I was this renounced Buddhist, but then I had all these dumb things that I couldn't believe I had. And then... I remember just sitting with it for a while and saying, okay, you've had an identity and you're stuck here with this identity and that's why you're suffering. 
wouldn't it be a little bit easier if you stopped identifying as being a renounced Buddhist? And then I thought about it for a while. So you can actually talk to yourself. You can talk yourself into this. And then um, I thought about it for a while, and I realized, okay, I need to let go. Well, it wasn't that easy, and it wasn't immediate. I did a lot of sensing what, it was, what was happening in my body, feeling some emotions around it. There was a little bit of sadness because I had this identity so strongly. And then, at a certain point, I noticed I wasn't suffering from it. Sometimes things let go on their own. Not that I don't necessarily aspire to living a life that has renunciation as a value. But part of what we're doing here is um, really learning to see what's true. Not living in delusion about who we are. This is the practice. This is a gift of the practice. Awareness has this self-liberating quality. It can allow our minds to let go in any moment. We can be in the midst of anger and notice we're clinging, see it, and our minds let go. We can be in the midst of fear. We can be in the midst of comparing or self-judgment. And we can see it, oh, there's self-judgment. Oh, what does it feel? Oh, here it is. Oh, it's gone. Sometimes things hang around. Don't start judging yourself if you're hearing this talk and you think, oh, that never works with me. Things last. There's, things are pernicious. We have habits of mind. We have hundreds, well, we have years and years of, of conditioning that keep our mind hooked. What we find is that there's an inherent joy in letting go. That as soon as our mind lets go, it's as though there's this sense of peace and joy. And we've all experienced it. It happens to every single one of us because we've let go over our lifetimes hundreds and thousands of times. We've let go. And we can learn to do it again and again. So just an example of being... Um, I, was on a, I, was, I was living for... I lived for um, some time in a forest monastery in Burma. And... I was stuck in a lot of aversion. I was really unhappy. Myanmar, Burma, Myanmar. And I was suffering from the bugs and the snakes and the spiders and the heat, and there was a lot of pain. And um, I would find that I couldn't let go. I was, I was in a lot of aversion. And we would have these meals, and the meals would be... Um, would be here at Spirit Rock, you have, number one, the food is delicious. I didn't particularly like the food over there. And two, um, you can eat very, very solitarily if you want. You can go sit outside and so forth. And so I, was, I would go and I would go sit down and you would be in front of all these people. There would be hundreds of people sometimes sitting watching you eat because they were really curious about Westerners coming and, and committing to this practice. And so... I'd be trying to eat, and there would be these giant tables, and people would be watching, and sometimes they would be photographing you, and occasionally videoing, I mean, which was the worst. And, um, and it was because they had donated the food. It was this incredible culture of donation. They'd be donating the food. 
And so we would sit in the midst of these tables trying to eat very mindly and slow, mindfully and slowly because our teachers were all watching us to make sure that we were being mindful, which we do not do. <laughs> Maybe we do, but I won't tell you. And, um, and so, and so I, I was feeling all this aversion, and it was hot, and there were all these... It was fly season, and so there were flies dive-bombing into my curry, and... Um, and there was this woman who was fanning our table, which I found to be tremendously embarrassing, and she would take the fan, and she'd take the edge of the fan and stick it into the curries and throw it off, and the curry would go flying, and the flies would go flying, and I would feel this is the most awful experience of my life. And I was in the midst of all of this. I remember this one day just hating it, hating it, hating it, and suddenly this little voice goes off in my head, and it says, you know... It doesn't have to be this way. And in that moment, it was as though the channel changed on the television. Or maybe the mute button went on or something. But I was completely there in the exact same situation, the flies and the people watching and the photographs and the fanning. But there was no, no clinging. It was amazing. I'm just looking around. I'm feeling all this happiness. And I start laughing because I just think this is hilarious what's going on. So I went from this moment of tremendous fear and aversion to this incredible joy. And yet, the circumstances didn't change. They didn't change. It's not about the external circumstances. It's about our hearts and mind and our relationship to it. This peace, this peace that is possible, this dropping of the banana is available in any moment. They say that nirvana, enlightenment, full awakening, is the complete letting go. So the famous Ajahn Sumedho quote says, if you want, um, if you want, If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. And this is the peace available to all of us. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, please help yourself. (laughs) So, that's the three noble truths. The fourth noble truth I'm not going to get into because it's a lot. It's the Eightfold Path, the way out of suffering. And um, it's, a, it's a prescription for a healthy lifestyle. It's what if the monkey had been doing, he might not have ended up in the, in the trap in the first place. So I think I'll just end with a, a quote from a young woman. I've been, um, I teach a lot with teenagers. I teach mindfulness. And this is a young woman, 16 years old, who went through an eight-week series of, mind, of mindfulness classes. to, um, And she was very depressed when she came in, really. She almost had no affect. And um, by the end of the class, she had completely transformed. It was like seeing this bright flower blossom. And she said, I've been pretty depressed for the whole year. See, I got involved with this guy, and I knew he was bad for me, but I was hooked on him. And then when we broke up six months ago, all I could do was think about him. He was always in my head like he possessed me. 
When I started meditation, I found it hard, kind of boring, and I was always sad. But one day I realized, I'm not my thoughts. I don't have to keep carrying my boyfriend around in my head. (laughs) So I let go. And now my mind is free. It's free. 16. So why don't we just take a moment to sit. This is a poem from a Zen master. The barns burnt down. Now I can see the moon. This talk was given by Diana Winston at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on January 25, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.